Well, we are beginning a new Bible study series for this fall tonight, and it's simply called The Last Word, and it's a study of the Gospel of John. Um, you just don't say it's your favorite book of the Bible because that changes, you know, depending on what you're going through, but this is my favorite gospel uh, for now. Anyway, it is entirely accurate to say that the Apostle John has the last word when it comes to Jesus in the New Testament for several reasons. Uh, first of all, John is described six times as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he's part of the inner circle that we uh, see over and over, Peter, James, and John. And then he's closest to Jesus at the Last Supper. And he's a first cousin to Jesus because their mothers, Mary and Salome, were sisters. And then he's the last to leave the cross as Jesus is dying. And he's also the disciple that's entrusted by Jesus in his last moments with the care of Jesus' mother, Mary. So you could argue that John is the closest of all the disciples to the Lord, and so he's obviously the final authority or the last word on the life and the death of Jesus. But John has the last word for another reason. His writing is incredibly powerful because the ministry and the words of Jesus are literally burned in his brain, and they are seared in his spirit even decades after the fact. John's memory is so keen that he still remembers, decades later, he still remembers the very hour that he met Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 39 says they met at 4 p.m. And he vividly recalls little details years after the fact. There were six water pots at the wedding in Cana. Chapter 2, verse 6. He remembers that that Samaritan woman, that anonymous woman at the well, she left her water pot in her excitement to get back to town and share her testimony. That's in chapter 4 and 28. And he remembers a little detail, kind of peculiar, that an anonymous cripple at the pool of Bethesda had been sick for 38 years. Now, who would remember that? That's in chapter 5 and verse 5. And he remembers that the high priest's servant was named Malchus. He's the only one that remembers his name. That's in chapter 18 and verse 10. And John, when he was a fisherman assisting his dad with his brother, he must have handled the financial end of the fishing business for his father Zebedee because there was enough accountant left in John that he even recorded what the feeding of the 5,000 would have cost if they'd had to pay for the food, 200 penny worth. That's chapter 6, verse 7. So all of those peculiar little details, they tell us one very important thing. John didn't happen on this story years later. He sure didn't make it up. John was an eyewitness. And in one of the other books that he writes in the New Testament of your Bible, he says this, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. He's talking about Jesus. And he says, for the life was manifested. We didn't just hear about it second or third or fourth hand. We have seen it and we bear witness and we show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. So John's saying, I was an eyewitness. I was there. I got to see Jesus. I got to talk to him. I got to touch him. But other disciples were eyewitnesses too. So there's got to be more to John having the last word than just that. You see, John is the last surviving elder of the first century. And his gospel, the three epistles that bear his name, and the book of Revelation, they are the final documents written by any of the apostles. Now, you know that the book of Revelation is placed last in the Bible. But chronologically speaking, all five of the books written by John belong at the end of the scriptural record because they're written last. It's, it's quite amazing. As John puts his pen to his parchment, more than 60 years after the day of Pentecost, he is keenly aware of one thing. I am the only original voice left. I'm the only one left who actually walked with Jesus. You see, Matthew and Mark and Luke, the other gospel writers, they're gone. 
they wrote their gospels to the Jews, to the Romans, and to the Greeks 30 years previous. And his friend Peter is gone. Peter, the great apostle. Peter, the Pentecost preacher. Peter, who also wrote his own epistles. Peter is gone, crucified, head downward by the Roman government at his own request because he didn't feel worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. And then the apostle Paul is gone. He's been silenced forever because he was brutally beheaded at the hands of the same despotic emperor who killed Peter, a man named Nero. But all of those martyrdoms, all of that carnage and death, all of those funerals and those sad goodbyes are now 30 years in the past. And John has now served as the sole surviving apostle, the sole surviving elder of the New Testament for at least three decades. So when he writes his gospel account, sometime after AD 90, John really does have the last word on the Lord Jesus. And that's why the gospel of John is so very unique and so very beautiful. By the close of the first century, false teaching is already beginning to rear its ugly head and attack the church. And that's why the gospel of John does more than any other gospel to tell us not just what Jesus did or where he went or what he said or the miracles he performed, but John tells us who Jesus really is. Because if we ever lose the revelation of who Jesus is, no other revelation actually matters anymore. You say, well, I thought divine healing was important. It is, but divine healing operates under the authority of the name of Jesus. I thought baptism was important. It is, but you just got wet unless you got baptized in the saving name of Jesus. So it's so very important what John is going to write about. And from his opening sentence, John's on a mission. He wants to prove that Jesus Christ is exactly who he said he was. John's on a mission to prove to you and me that Jesus is the true and the only God in a body of flesh. And so 90% of John's gospel is unique. There are no parables in John. That's quite strange if you've read the other three gospels. But instead of parables, there are a lot of conversations, lengthy conversations, significant conversations. There's a conversation with Nicodemus. There's one with that anonymous Samaritan woman at a well. There's a conversation with Mary and Martha. There's conversations with Peter and many, many other people. John's gospel is very different. John is very selective even about the miracles that he records. Some are unique only to him. You wouldn't know the story of the raising of Lazarus from the dead if it hadn't been for the gospel of John. And the miracles that he does record, he always twins them with Jesus' teaching. For example, all four of the gospel writers, they record the feeding of the 5,000, but only John records Jesus' powerful sermon immediately following that miracle when he teaches, I am the bread of life. So to put it plainly, John is given the last word in the Bible because he most clearly presents Jesus as the last word from God. Jesus isn't just like God. Jesus isn't just part of God. Jesus is God in a body of flesh. I am come in my Father's name, chapter 5 and 43. I and my Father are one, chapter 10 and 30. He that has seen me hath seen the Father, chapter 14 and 9. God has always manifested himself in various ways, all through the Bible, all through history. But Jesus is what the Bible would call the ultimate manifestation of God. Jesus is the last word from God. The writer of Hebrews says this, God who at sundry times and in divers manners, he spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. So God was manifesting himself and speaking and revealing himself at different times and in different ways. But he hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things by whom also he made the worlds. 
You want to know who created this world that we get to enjoy? It was the Jesus you were worshiping just a few moments ago. He was the one who created the world, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Let me put that in modern technical vocabulary. Jesus is an exact replica of God because he is God. If you want to know what God looks like, acts like, reacts like, talks like, responds like, you need to know Jesus. He's the brightness of his glory. He's the express image of his person. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Somebody say word. See, Jesus is the last word from God. When he had by himself, he didn't need any help. When he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Literally, he sat in the place of all power and all authority. And that's why Jesus can deliver you from sin and addiction and bondage. That's why Jesus can heal your mind, your family, and your body. That's why Jesus receives your worship because he's worthy of it. The very last book in your Bible, also written by John, he said, and I saw heaven open in his grand vision, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and true. What a pair of words to describe this Jesus that we worship. He's faithful and he's true. He's never told me a lie and he's never not shown up when I needed him. He's faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. Somebody say the word of God. See, you think the word of God is your Bible and it is, but the word became flesh. The word is a person and that person is Jesus and that's why your relationship with God's word is so important because the word reveals the name and the name is Jesus. Oh my goodness. And that's why John's gospel starts so differently than Matthew and Mark and Luke. John starts like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Greek term here is logos, and logos simply means spoken word or expression. That's what logos means, a spoken word or an expression. In the same way, that my words express my will, my heart, my personality, in the same way that your words re reflect and, and, and express your will and your heart and your personality, Jesus was the physical expression of the will, the heart, and the personality of God. The Bible tells us in John's writing, chapter 4 and 24, that God is a spirit. So we can't see him at all. Humanity cannot discern him unless he chooses to reveal himself. But thankfully, Jesus is the last word. He is the ultimate expression of God. The word was with God, John said. It's, he's the expression of God, but he's the expression of God because he is God. He says the word was not only with God, the word was God. You see, my words are, are my expression because they come from me, because they're my words. And Jesus, he is the expression of God because he is God. When he speaks, that's God speaking. When he acts, that's God acting. When he does it, that's God doing it. It's amazing. Creation only happened when God spoke. So the logos or the spoken word or the expression of God, it has existed from the very beginning because creation couldn't happen unless God expressed himself. 
And that's why John's gospel begins with that verse right there. And he wants you to think of another verse. He wants you to think when he says, in the beginning was the word. He wants your mind to race back to these words. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Because Jesus is the creator. Jesus is all in all. Jesus is the great God, the only true God, the only living God. And John continues in his book and he says, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. Now that would pretty much do away with any notion that Jesus is some kind of junior partner with a holy deity or a holy committee. Jesus without him was not anything made that was made. You're not just serving Jesus. You were created by Jesus. You were knit together in your mother's womb by Jesus. No wonder he can fix you. No wonder he can heal you. No wonder he can save you. No wonder he loves you because he made you. Without him was not anything made that was made. And he just gets done that creation parallel. And here's another one. Just as God created life and light in the physical world, he brings light and life in our spiritual lives. The darkness of sin is all around us everywhere. And sin is a stubborn thing. But John says the darkness cannot understand the light and it cannot overcome the light. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. John also wrote those words. Here's what he says. In him was life and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness, now this next word has a dual meaning in Greek, the darkness comprehended it not. The darkness couldn't get it, it couldn't understand it, it couldn't discern it, it kind of fought against it. But that word also means the darkness could not overcome it. The darkness could not conquer it. The darkness could not drown the light out. When you flip the light switch on, darkness flees and light comes. That's the same as Jesus. In him was life and that life was the light of men. And now John the Apostle takes a little detour and he introduces us to John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist was the first prophet whoever got to introduce Jesus to the world. This is the beautiful thing. Other prophets pointed to Jesus. Isaiah pointed to Jesus many times in his writing. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He's pointing to Jesus, but he's doing it from 600 years away. Other prophets pointed to Jesus from afar, but John got to touch him up close. Oh my goodness, what a privilege that must have been. John says, John the Apostle writes about John the Baptist and he says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light because Jesus was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. God sent a witness to be a witness to the word that he had spoken, the word that he was manifesting, that body of flesh that he was robed in, that light that he was bringing into the world. Light always needs a witness. And so if God puts light in your life, he doesn't do that so you can try to hide it. He doesn't do that so you can try to camouflage it. He puts light in your life so you can let your light shine. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Do you understand that the same Jesus who said, I am the light of the world, he also said, and you are the light of the world. And so if we've got his light, we just let it shine. Now we'll return to John the Baptist in a moment. But first, John has more to say about the Logos who brought us God's life and God's light. You would think that after hundreds of years of prophecy, pointing over and over and over again to the Messiah, you would think that when Jesus came, he would have been embraced with open arms. But sadly, that was not the case. The world didn't even recognize him. And his own people, the Jews, they didn't even receive him. 
But I'm glad to tell you that when the world didn't recognize him and when his own people didn't receive him, there was a group of people who did receive him. He was in the world and the world was made by him, but the world knew him not. He came unto his own and his own received him not. What a sad story. What a tragic verse. But the next verse is pretty good. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they were born of God. Do you understand who you are? You are among the people who did receive him. You are the people who did receive his power. You are the people who did take on his name. You are the people who welcomed him. How ironic that is, that the God who created the world came to live in his world and they didn't even recognize him. The Messiah that had all the feasts and the festivals and the prophets and the priests and the altars and the sacrifices, every one of them pointed straight to him. He came to the Jews and they refused to receive him. But as many as received him, that's us. The single most important thing you can ever do in your life is receive Jesus into your life. As many as received him, that's you and me. We receive him through repentance. When we decide that we're going to turn away from our own will and our own darkness and we're going to walk toward him and his light, we receive him through repentance. But there's more than that. As many as received him, To them gave he power to become the sons of God. What is that power that he's talking about? That power, if you read further in the Gospel of John, it's obviously the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is God's power from on high. And then he says there's a certain particular kind of belief here. Even to them that believe on his name. How do you get Jesus' name applied to your life? How do you believe in such a way that you take on his name? I'll tell you, it's very simple. It's in your New Testament. You are baptized into the name of Jesus, into covenant with his name. So that John hasn't even gotten out of the first chapter, and he's already alluding ahead to the new birth experience. As many as received him in repentance, he gave them power to live for him. That's the Holy Ghost. Even to them that believe on his name, that's those that have taken on his name in baptism. He hasn't even got through the first chapter. This is actually what the theologians call the prologue to the whole gospel. He's not out of the prologue and he's already jumping ahead because it's a powerful thing when your life is changed and transformed by the new birth experience. We can be born again. I don't care how dysfunctional the life you have now is. Whatever your first birth gave you for heredity and problems and issues and tendencies and sins, whatever came as a package with your first birth. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You can have a new birth. You can have a second birth. You can be born from above. You can be born again. It's all right there in John's writing. And it's all possible only because the word was made flesh. In the incarnation, God took on a human nature that he had never had before so that one day we could take on a divine nature that we had never had before. Some of you... You wonder why you got problems. You wonder why you got tensions. You wonder why some days you just feel a little bit schizophrenic. It's because you got a new nature in you. And your old nature tries to pull you down and your new nature tries to pull you up. Your old nature tries to pull you back and your new nature tries to pull you ahead. That's why you've got to, John said it, you've got to walk in the light as he is in the light. And then his blood cleanses us from all sins. That's what you've got to do. My goodness, I feel the Holy Ghost in Bible study. And then John comes to the crowning verse, the crowning piece of this prologue to his gospel. 
when he says this. He's already told us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and now he says, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as, the on, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You put a bookmark on grace and truth because we'll be back to it in about three more verses. John has been using creation images from Genesis. He's been talking about God and creation and in the beginning. He's been using creation images from Genesis. God who creates light in the darkness. It's all images from Genesis. But now he jumps a book and he starts using a redemption image from Exodus. You remember in the Old Testament, God dwelt in a tent structure called the tabernacle. He dwelt in the midst of his people in a humble looking building called the tabernacle. On the outside, it was covered with just old badger skins. It didn't look like much. But on the inside, everywhere you looked, there was fine twined linen curtains and gold everywhere. It was beautiful and glorious on the inside, very plain and ordinary on the outside. And that tabernacle, brothers and sisters, was a picture pointing like laser lights to Jesus. It was showing us God manifest in flesh. So in the Old Testament, God dwelt in a tent called the tabernacle. But in the New Testament, John just told us that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The Greek word there literally reads, and he tabernacled among us. God, who was eternal, came and dwelt among us who are temporal. God, who was sinless, came and dwelt among us who were sinful. God, who was holy, came and dwelt among us who were unholy. But he didn't come so he could condemn us and make us feel hopeless. He came so he could pull us out of sin. He came so he could lift us out of bondage. He came so that we could walk into his light and be changed. And he was full of grace and truth. Now, he, he jumps back to John the Baptist for a second. John bare witness of him and cried saying, this was he of whom I spake. John the Baptist said, he that comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. What are you saying, John? I'm saying before I was ever born, he existed. Before my mom and my dad, before they became my parents and welcomed me into their family, Jesus already existed. Why, John? What are you saying? I'm saying that Jesus Christ of Nazareth was God who created the heavens and the earth. And of his fullness have we all received. And grace for grace... It's John the Apostle talking now. He said, we've received grace for grace. Literally what he says there, we've received gift after gift. I'm gonna lose it here. Gift after gift after gift after gift after gift. That's what we receive from Jesus. It's not enough that he saved us out of sin. He blessed us. Some of us, we've got jobs that we never dreamed of having. We've got homes and families and possessions that we never dreamed of having because we weren't like we are now when Jesus found us. My friend Jerry Dean calls it redemptive lift, that when the grace of God gets into a family tree, it just starts lifting. Pastor Jack, he's way different than some of his family way back a few generations. I'm way different than some of my family way back a few generations. You know why? Because we've received gift after gift after gift, grace after grace after grace, mercy after mercy after mercy. Would you just lift up your hands and thank him for it? Oh, he's worthy of praise and thanks and adoration and glory. Gift after gift we've received, John said. Oh my. Oh my. Thank you, Jesus. Soto roto Yeah, it's all right to pray in the spirit when you're talking about the gospel of John. He's the one who recorded Jesus' words. Out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. And this spake he of the Holy Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. So it's okay even in the middle of Bible study to pray in the Holy Ghost. 
gift after gift and grace after grace and forgiveness after forgiveness. Oh, God has blessing after blessing. Healing after healing. He's so good to us. Oh, my. Thank you, Jesus. And John says, of his fullness have all we received and grace for grace, gift after gift. And I like this next statement because it explains a lot. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. That's his summation of what's happening as the word becomes flesh. Because God was always God. So the difference is not that God has now, you gotta be careful who you listen to. Some people would have you think and believe that God turfed the Old Testament, threw it on the trash heap so he could bring us the New Testament. Nothing could be further from the truth. Paul says the Old Testament was the law, was a schoolmaster to bring us where? To bring us to Christ. So God didn't discard or trash or rubbish the Old Testament. But John explains something powerful here. He said the law was given by Moses. Somebody say the rules. That's what he's saying. The rules were given by Moses. Now I know that the human being, the human family, we don't like rules. Nobody likes rules except when you're making them for somebody else. If you've got employees, you want to make rules for them because you want them there on time. If you've got children, you make rules for them because you want them to go to bed on time and get up on time and do all kinds of stuff. You are a great rule maker when you don't have to live by your own rules. But the human condition is we don't like anybody making rules for us. But if we didn't have the rules, if we didn't have the law, if we didn't have the Old Testament, if we didn't have the commandments, we wouldn't know how deeply in trouble we were with the Holy God. So I'm just here to tell you, I'm not turfing the Old Testament. I thank God that he spent hundreds and hundreds of years showing us the way, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little. He showed us how much trouble we were in so we'd know we needed help. But he wasn't content just to shame us, just to guilt us, just to hurt us. After he showed us how much trouble we were in, he said, now here's the solution. Now here's the way out. Now here's your redemption. Somebody say, the rules, they came from Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. You know what grace is? Grace is not a cover for your sin. Grace is not an excuse to get by. Grace is not hoping for the best and just saying, well, God, you owe me. You gotta forgive me because I sinned again. That's not grace. Grace is not an excuse. Grace is the enabling power of God to lift you up and let you live a victorious life. That's what grace is. I've said it many times, but it bears repeating. In the Old Testament, the law of Moses said, don't kill. And we say, check, haven't done that yet. New Testament, Jesus comes along and lifts the law up to here and he says, if you hate your brother in your heart, you're guilty of murder. So the law of grace is higher and harder to keep than the law of Moses. Old Testament, Jesus says, God says in the 10 commandments, don't commit adultery. We go, check. In the New Testament, Jesus raises the bar way up to here and says, if you look on someone to lust after them, you've committed adultery in your heart. So once again, the law that grace gives us to live by is way harder and way higher than the law that Moses gave us to live by. Which if you're thinking should make you throw up your hands in abject despair and say, if they couldn't keep the law in the Old Testament, then surely we are hopeless in the New Testament. And you're absolutely right. Except the word became flesh and dwelt among us and gave us gift after gift and grace after grace. So, let me say the rules. The law was given by Moses. But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Let's use these words. Somebody say power. That's what grace gives you. It gives you enabling power to live for God. 
And somebody say principles. Principles. The truth that Jesus explains. The truth that the epistles teach us. It goes higher and cuts deeper and takes us further than Old Testament commandments ever could. So I'd like to take that verse, verse 17, and simply say this. For the rules came from Moses, but power and principles came from Jesus Christ. And we live his principles, which are higher than the Old Testament rules, but we live them by his power, by his enabling grace. From Jesus, we have received gift after gift because the life he gives us is truly life more abundantly. Rules were given by Moses, but the power and the principles came by Jesus Christ. Now, John's coming to a close, but I'm not. John's coming to a close. (laughs) In verse 18, that's the end of his prologue. Every linguist and theologian worth their salt will tell you that the first 18 verses are kind of a prologue, an introduction to the gospel. And and so this last verse says this. He ends right where he began. No man hath seen God at any time. We're still talking about this invisible God, this spirit that we can't see. No man hath seen God at any time, but the only begotten son which is in the bosom of the father, he hath declared him. So God is a spirit, we can't see him, but because the logos, God's expression, God's person was made flesh, we now can know the will and the heart and the personality of God. So quite literally, maybe this will be easier to remember, the incarnation is God's declaration of his love. When he incarnated himself, when he robed himself in flesh, he was declaring his love. And that's how John ends his little prologue. He says, the son of God, he has declared him. And so that's what he's saying. Now, later in John's gospel, I'm almost finished, but later in John's gospel, he will record some of the opposition and some of the accusations that are leveled against Jesus. When Jesus looks at a group of people and says, I and my father are one, now, the odd thing today in Christianity is they'll take that, that verse, they'll take Jesus' statement, and they'll parse it a thousand ways, and they'll debate it, and they'll argue over it, and they'll come up with something that basically means Jesus and the Father are not one. They're actually two. But when Jesus spoke those words, the people that were listening to him, they knew exactly what he was saying so much that they were ready to kill him because he claimed to be God. Just three verses later, the Jews answered him saying, for a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy. And here's the charge that they leveled against Jesus, that thou being just a man, you make yourself God. Jesus was falsely accused of being a man who made himself God when actually it was the reverse that was true. He was God who made himself a man. That's the whole message of the gospel of John. In fact, it's the whole message of the New Testament. Paul said, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And when Paul was writing to young Timothy, he said, Timothy, let me tell you, here's what we all agree on in the first century apostolic church. And without controversy, no disagreement, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Who's that? That's Jesus. He was justified in the spirit. Jesus. He was seen of angels. Jesus. He was preached unto the Gentiles. Jesus. He was believed on in the world. Jesus. He was received up into glory. That's all Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. It's such an important revelation that when John sits down 30 years after the loss of every other apostle in the New Testament, 60 years after the day of Pentecost, that when he sits down to write his gospel, he wants to be sure to anchor us to the truth that Jesus wasn't like God, sort of God, part of God, kind of God, a little God, a mini God, a demigod. Jesus was almighty God. The word became flesh, John said in his gospel. Jesus was touchable. He was approachable. He was reachable. 
when you read John's gospel, when you read the other gospels too, but you think about those implications. When God chose to reveal himself, he did so through a human body. The tongue that called Lazarus out of the grave was a human tongue, just like yours. The hand that touched and cleansed the leper had dirt under his fingernails. The feet on which that sinful woman wept were calloused and dirty and dusty. And his tears came from a heart that had been broken, just like your heart is broken sometimes. The writer of Hebrews latched onto that truth and said, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. But he was in all points tempted, just like you and me, like as we are, but the difference is he was without sin. He never yielded to sin. He never fell. He never failed. But he felt everything. He was tempted in every way. He felt weakness and tiredness. And, 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 and there's something that you see in John's gospel and in the other gospel writings. There's never a hint in the gospels of anybody being afraid to draw near to Jesus. Never one time. Never is anybody afraid to come to Jesus. Yes, there are those who mocked him. Yes, there were those who were envious of him. Yes, there were those who misunderstood him. There were those who tried to kill him. And there were others who revered him. But there's not one person in any of the four gospels who considered Jesus too holy, too aloof, too distant to touch. Think about the gospels. If I could but touch the hem of his garment. She wasn't afraid to touch him. Everybody else was afraid of her touching them, but she wasn't afraid to reach out to touch Jesus. There was not one person in the gospels who was reluctant to approach Jesus because they feared being rejected. Do you know why? Because for 33 and a half years, Jesus felt everything we feel and he went through everything that we go through and he became like us. And because he tabernacled among us, because the word became flesh just like us, that's why you can always be comfortable reaching out to touch Jesus. Please hear me. No matter how bad you've messed it up, no matter how drastically you failed, no matter how dramatically you have fallen from his grace, you never have to be afraid of reaching out to touch Jesus. He came so he could touch you. He came so he could touch us. You just listen in the gospel of John. You listen to the logos, the expression, the will, the heartbeat of God. You listen to the logos speak in the gospel of John. The words, love your neighbor. That was spoken by a man whose neighbors tried to kill him. The challenge that he gave to leave family for the sake of the gospel, that was issued by a man who had to kiss his own mother goodbye. Pray for those who persecute you. That came from lips that would soon be forgiving his murderers from a cross. And on that cross, his anguished cry, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That anguished cry made possible an astonishing promise for you and me. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. He felt forsaken so you would never have to be forsaken. That's what John's trying to tell us at the end of the first century. He's saying, yes, the word became flesh. Yes, the incarnation is God's declaration of his love. No, you never have to be afraid of reaching out to touch Jesus because the whole reason he came is so he could touch you. I got one more scripture setting, but before we go there, would you just lift your hands one more time and would you let out your voice and, and would you just thank him? There's such a, a residing, resounding presence of God in this room right now.
Oh, I love you, Jesus. I worship you, God. Oh, I thank you, Jesus. I worship you, God. Oh, I worship you, Jesus. Oh, I worship you, God. Paul would later write in Philippians. He said this, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. In other words, he was God. It wasn't his ego that thought that. He just was God. He was equal with God. But he chose to make himself of no reputation. And he took upon himself the form of a servant. He robed himself in flesh. He was made in the likeness of men. And that wasn't bad enough. That wasn't low enough. That wasn't disgraceful enough. Even after he was born in a manger as a man, after he grew up in a pauper's home in a little tiny nondescript village, it got worse. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And that is the world's greatest tragedy. That is history's greatest travesty. That God would come from heaven to earth and we would treat him like a common criminal and nail his body to an instrument of execution and bury him in a tomb that he didn't even own. It is the travesty of all history. But it was all in the plan of God. Wherefore, for this very reason, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Oh, you people pray too much in the name of Jesus. Couldn't do it. You sing too much about Jesus. Impossible. You worship Jesus far too long. Absolutely couldn't do it because God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every other name. That at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How does it give God the Father glory when you worship Jesus? It's because they're one and the same. I and my Father are one. I am come in my Father's name. So when you bow your knee to Jesus, you're bowing your knee to God. When you proclaim Jesus is Lord, Lord, you're giving glory to God. Oh my. So yes, Jesus will have the last word because Jesus is the last word from God. Someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Guess what? We just decided to get on that train early. Some of us have been on that train for 50 years. We've spent years of our life confessing that he is Lord and bowing our knee before him. So we're just trying to get some other people to realize who he is. We're trying to let that light shine in this world. I'm done. Would you stand? Would you lift your voice? Would you stretch your hands toward heaven and just give God praise in this room? Jesus is Lord. When you say that, when you live that, when you know that, you're giving glory to God. Oh, yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Yes, 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 yes. Yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Somebody say it with me. Say, Christ in you. Say, His Spirit that dwelleth in you. Those are Bible phrases. Jesus didn't only come so he could tabernacle among us because of the new birth. 
He lives in us. And so here's where we're going to finish tonight at Bible study. In just a second, we're just going to pray together before we go home. And, you know, some needs are very obvious, but some needs hide. And you would have no idea that somebody has a a crushing, pressing need in their life. But because you have him in you, when you reach out and touch them, when you reach out and love them, when you reach out and embrace them, when you reach out and love them, that's him touching them. That's him embracing them. That's him loving them. And it's so powerful. My goodness. So would you just reach over? It doesn't matter if you know their name. If you do, great. If you don't, I promise you that even if you know their name and they live in your house, you might not know everything they're going through. I'd like you to lift all those hands together if you would. Just take them by the hand. and Now, just lift up your voice and let's pray one for another. Let's let his spirit flow. Let's let that grace after grace, gift after gift, let's just let that flow today because you can be the expression of God's love to somebody. You can pray a prayer and somebody can be healed from a disease in their body. You can express God's love to them and they can fall in love with the Jesus that you already acclaim as your Lord. Oh, I worship you, Jesus. Let your spirit flow. Let your spirit breathe in this place. Let your spirit move in this place. Touch through us, God. Minister through us, God. It's not just to us, but minister through us. Touch through us, God. Oh, I thank you, Jesus. Oh, I thank you, Jesus. You are the word made flesh. You are the living word. You are my redeemer. You are my provider. You are my savior. You are my healer. You are the living word. Oh, Jesus. Pastor and Sister Kathy, would you come grab a couple of mics? I want to sing something. Would you just continue to worship the Lord? I'm just going to, if we get out this early, we'll freak out the young people. So would you just lift up your hands one more time? We're just going to sing one quick little chorus. Oh, just let your voice out. Just let your voice out. Let's sing that old song, No One Can Touch You Like Jesus Can. <laughs>